0: Welcome to the Africa Speaking Podcast. The podcast discusses critical issues about the African continent. It is brought to you by Teresa Communications in Nairobi. My name is Kimani Njogu. So, welcome to this conversation.
1: Can you tell me briefly about yourself? Asante Boranjogu. So, my name is Wahu Wahumushiri. I work on African literature, written in English, Swahili, French, Gekoyo. And I teach at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. I've been there since 2016. Previously, I was a postdoc at Duke. Um, and I got the chance to work with students and take students to... Uh, Ghana through the Duke in Ghana program. Uh, the point being that my educational and research interests are centered on the African continent, widely described, right, including the diaspora, of course. So, so yeah. where did you go to school? So uh, let's start way, way back. A small place called Silverbeck Academy in uh, Gekambura, right up here in the water. Then we moved to Ngong and I was at uh, Ngong Hills Academy. Then I got the chance to move to Aga Khan Academy, the section Um, and then I had a really good opportunity to spend two years in Singapore at a place called the United World College of Southeast Asia and I uh, did essentially form five and six through the IB program and after that my education changed into a I suppose a more non-traditional form because I did a gap year uh, in Western Kenya at uh, Mudete, Chavakali, if you know those areas. Mm-hmm. And I was teaching IT and uh, working with high school and primary school students on the sports field so, athletics, football, netball then after that, this was in 2004, 2005. In August 2005, I moved to the U.S. for my undergraduate. I did my bachelor's at um, Lafayette College with our mutual friend, uh, Rex Ahedman. Exactly. And I was in one of his uh, macroeconomics class. So I started off as a chemical engineer at Lafayette. In third year, chemical engineering and I parted ways um, for best. So I switched to English and engineering studies. And then post Lafayette, I moved to the University of Miami for my Ph.D and then after that I was at Duke and now I'm at uh, Nebraska. So
0: from engineering to literature?
1: Yes, from engineering to
0: literature. What attracted you to literature? I'm very interested in this.
1: Yeah, so for me engineering broadly defined and chemical engineering in particular, it was very clear that we were great at producing all these sorts of technologies and manufacturing plants and institutions. You know, we were recycling. But the question of ownership was never quite defined. The question of ownership was skipped over in, within the engineering classes. And to me, English produced some of the answers towards those questions of ownership. Okay. We've built a wonderful new chemical manufacturing plant. Who does it belong to? To me, that was a fundamental question that you know, predefined what the plant was going to do, who was going to work there, what we were going to do with the profits, the revenues. And I didn't get the sense that engineering was conscious enough about that question. But English was, right? Very
0: interesting. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, so, hence the switch. I have a friend, uh, Professor Mohamed Ablaziz, mm-hmm. who told me once that one of the ways in which Africa will industrialize mm-hmm. is by developing an African language for industrialization. Mm. Because you need to give meaning to that which you are creating. Yes. And I think this is precisely the point that um, we need to be able to create meaning and of those things that we create, which takes me to really the topic of our discussion today, because it's about meaning. I mean, Mm -hmm. what, in your view, I've seen that you've done some interesting work on land uh, in in literature. Mm -hmm. What is the meaning Mm -hmm. of land in Africa if you think about the continent itself? Mm -hmm. Is it just a source of livelihoods,
1: or is it slightly more than that? There are varied, multiple Diverse, complex meanings to land on the African continent. And that disconnect is what has caused a lot of the challenges, a lot of the chaos, if I have to say that, with our approach to development, but also with the colonial experience. The pre colonial understanding of land on the continent, generally speaking, was land was not a commodity, land was an all encompassing being that was alive that was dynamic, that was changing, that was part and parcel of the community's life, right? But the people, the community and the land could not be separated. Meaning if you move the people from one part of the country to another, if you box them into the reservations, I'm thinking here of Kenya, of course, mm-hmm. the, right? the 1950s movement into concentration like camps or of South Africa into the Bantustans, if you move the people from the land, you've you've changed the people. I don't know if I'm making myself yes, clear yes, 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 that the land and the people are one and the same. And conversely, if you change the land, if you pollute the land, if you mine gold and not uh, rehabilitate that space, you've also changed the community, you've changed the people. And that complex relationship, if looked at from a Western perspective, which dichotomizes things versus beings, mm-hmm. right, that Kind of dynamic interrelationship between the ecosystem and the community, it's lost in translation, let me put it that way. Western industrialization looks at land as a resource, as a factor of production, mm-hmm. right, as a means of production. Mm-hmm. And it is that. You know, we farm, we do animal husbandry, you know, we keep bees, we fish, we, we do all those things, all those economic activities. But in addition to that, there are layers of meaning on which we've mapped onto our lands um, from the names, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is it Lake Victoria or is it Namlalwe, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, Is it like Turkana, is it like Rudolph, is it like Albert or is it an an indigenous name? Mm these are, these are really important questions. So the naming of our land and the spaces that we
0: occupy suggests a continuity of who we are. So there is no rapture. The connection, you know, I mean, I think that in most Africa, we believe we come from the land and back to Return. the land. To, so the Absolutely. cyclic that we have with the land. Mm-hmm. But you did say something rather important here also, that it's the dichotomy that comes through the colonial experience mm-hmm. that also seems to undermine our development trajectory. Could you could you elaborate a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so and actually returning to the point that you made uh, from your friend, your colleague about quote unquote African language of industrialization, I agree and I would actually add that it's not so much inventing the language, it's using the philosophies that we already have. So the question is imagine if we were to industrialize from the point of view of Ubuntu right? What would that mean? I think that would mean that we connect our railway stations and our road projects with the local indigenous communities that actually live side by side with those spaces, right? That the fact that Kibera Settlement has a railway track that runs through it, that should change positively, right, the lives of those people. And it currently doesn't, right? The railway track takes away from their lives as opposed to adding value to their lives. I think this idea of Ubuntu or Omodo, they're similar ideas across the continent, but if we were to approach industrialization from this you know, it's, it's a homegrown, it's an indigenous um, idea of connecting not just human needs, but also what does the ecosystem need from us to, to keep that cycle of growth and regeneration happening?
0: Very, very interesting. So, so that, uh, you know, our development is not something that is imposed, but it's a continuum of our lives. And we are building, you know, roads and the road network. What effects do the roads have on our people and our lives and so on? And I think that, you know, in the case of Kenya, we have, of course, integrated the concept of public participation on all sorts of development agendas. But, of course, land also is a spiritual thing. Um, You know, quite often, there are those sacred, uh, you know, sites that you don't interfere with. Therefore, when you do development and you do these expansive conservancies and so on, what do they do to those sacred spaces which are carriers of history and spirituality and uh, connection with our people and so on. So I completely understand your view here that it's the
1: integrative nature of what we do with communities, right? Yeah, absolutely. And wildlife conservancies, they're an interesting thing, uh, if I had to put it that way. From my point of view, wildlife conservancies approach the human ecosystem relationship from a, again from a dichotomy. Mm-hmm. That it's you're either... Conserving, right, preserving and uh, working to make sure that the ecosystem stays pristine or you're not. The idea that there could be a slightly different way of communities and wildlife or plant life or bird life intermingling living together is lost when we take the conservatory approach you know the huge kind of wildlife reservations approach because then the reservations become this no-go zones mm-hmm. where local communities have no input and no benefit right from from these spaces as opposed to a slightly different approach where communities had things like totem animals and sacred spaces Right, the Mogumo trees were not separated from Kikuyo communities. Mm-hmm. They were part and parcel of the communities. Mm-hmm. But there was a communal understanding that this, you know, however large the tree was, that that particular space, even as much as it may be at the very centre of the village, is is a slightly different kind of space, right? It, that it's a spiritual space. That it's that things that I could do, you know, ten feet away from the Mogumo tree, I could chop firewood. I could. Uh, make a fire, could you know, boil some maize. So those are not things I can do under the mugumutri. It's it's right next to each other, but mentally the community has trained itself to separate these these activities, um, and I think we lose that kind of dynamic approach when we separate or try to separate human communities from ecosystem, from, from wildlife. Um, and I think we lose yeah. uh, as opposed to, to gaining.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Which then takes us to literature, because if literature is the artistic expression mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the human condition mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. on, is this a place where we can actually go to understand issues of land and to get better clarity of the complexity of how Africans relate with land. And uh, in your view, I mean, how are African writers drawing on land as a resource for their imagination, as a resource for issues that they bring out today's political, economic, social, cultural <laughs> concerns from the communities? How is land playing out, in other words, in African literature? Is it a resource for, is it a place where we could actually go to understand more? And how are writers harvesting this heritage that we have on the continent?
1: I will approach it from a slightly different perspective. Mm-hmm. So one, I would say in the case of literatures from the African continent, right, emphasis on plurality. Uh, Literatures from the African continent written in English or Kiswahili or Gokoyo or French a little bit, because that's what I've been able to access, I find one, two, three kind of approaches to to land or how writers are thinking about land. One, of course, is returning to this moment of disrupture between the pre-colonial and the colonial moment. And, you know, folks like Goyo or have, um, have have thought deeply and um, seriously about what happens when settler colonialism is imposed in particular spaces, um, central Kenya in particular, but other writers do the same work for um, other regions. So there is that, right? Land in the midst of colonial, imperial incursion, whether that's uh, British in, in Kenya or German or uh, the Belgians or the French, etc. So there is that and then in the immediate post-independence moment there's this question by african writers of what do we do with the land now that we've gained political independence right now that we can raise our own flags we can set our own economic political agendas what what do we do with the land ethiopia you know gives us a slightly different example in tanzania too right with this idea of african socialism and writers pick up on that so folks like ibrahim hussein writing in tanzania they think deeply about what does Jama do to the community's relationship to itself and to its land. Folks like uh, Berhane Saleselasi in Ethiopia, who writes uh, not just in Amharic but also in Gurage, which happens to be a language that has a small uh, speaking population but he thought it was still important enough to represent in literature. And, and he thinks too about in, in this late 1960s, early 1970s moment, what are Ethiopian nations doing with land? Uh, it's towards the end of the Haile Selassie monarchy. It's the beginning of the Derg Mengistu Haile Mariam. Uh, so there are those two. And then now, I'd say in the 21st century, I'm thinking particularly of writers like Yvonne mm. um Dust. I'm thinking of Yvonne Vera writing in Zimbabwe. They are approaching land and the connection between African communities and their spaces from a non-dichotomous perspective. Right, They're really pushing and challenging this idea of binaries between things and beings. Uh, Both War and Vera do a really good job of representing the land as a living, breathing dynamic entity on its own right you know that changes that has uh, certain responsibilities that it requires of us as the occupants and i think they both take very seriously this idea that communities who live on certain in certain spaces are not owners but rather they are simply custodians who are taking care of what has been handed over to them by the dead and the living dead and you know we are preserving taking care of that improving hopefully those spaces for for the unborn, for the for the generations to come. Definitely uh,
0: Yvonne War um, does this by looking at the history of communities and so on, yep. uh, which then introduces the tension around, of course, the pluralism, the colonial experience where land ownership becomes introduced mm-hmm. other than land use. Mm-hmm. So in the pre-colonial Africa, mm-hmm. people used land. Mm-hmm. You never owned land as such because ownership means that you have almost like exclusive rights. And therefore, what you are saying is that in this literature coming from writers such as Yvonne, there is this questioning of what do you do? How do we minimize or even eradicate completely this dichotomy and work within the terrain of cyclicity and continuum of life and so on? I have always wondered people in other disciplines, mm. such as, say, in government or in law or in economics, should not actually be looking at what literature is saying to be able to understand things that could provide solutions to some of the problems that they are grappling with. Because they tend to... so problems sometimes technically, and they lose out on some of these. I mean, have you reflected on this possibility, really?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, So two things. One is the language, and then back to your question about the technical approach versus the kind of humanities approach. The other thing that attracts me to both Awur's and Vera's work is uh, and here in Awur, I'm thinking both of Dust and also Dragonfly Sea where yeah. she writes about the Indian Ocean. Yes, so the yes. same things apply whether it's land or water. It's
0: amazing the way she draws on the coastal region and the yes. Indian Ocean absolutely. all the way from Pate going down. I mean, absolutely. I'm like, absolutely taken
1: and up by... And across the ocean, right? the, gals, across the ocean. Yes, All like the way a- to the China Sea. Yeah. Um, and, and focuses on organisms, right? the dragonfly. Yeah. Um, And in Vera, I'm thinking about Nehanda in particular, one of the pieces that she's written. So what I find is that for both writers, they make it fairly clear that even though they're writing in English, when they're writing about these spaces, it is inevitable for them to include the languages that are spoken in these spaces. So in Vera's case, she includes Shona aesthetics in her English-written Nehanda. You know, the way the dialogues work, the way time runs, it's not linear time, it's cyclical time. It's a different kind of chronology. You know, we were talking about cycles, mm-hmm. so cycles both of human lives, but also cycles of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. That is evident in the way that she writes the novel. And in the same way with O'Wall, when she's writing in Dust about the northern Kenya spaces, there's influence of... Uh, Turkana languages and aesthetics and ways of viewing th- those spaces, appreciating, living in and with those spaces, that appear in the way that the English, you know, um, reads to me as as the reader appears to me on the page. So I think the point is that whenever writers are focusing, representing, depicting African spaces, inevitably the African languages spoken in those spaces appear in one way or the other, and. My argument would be that part of the disconnect that happens, the colonial moment, is that the land is being shaped by people who not only don't speak these languages, our languages, they actively despise these languages, right? And the languages are important in the global sense of their ways of communicating but they're even more important as repositories of indigenous knowledge and so when there's that hierarchy of english as a superior language to Masai or Koyo or kimeru or Kigiryama what is lost is the accumulation of ecosystem and ecological knowledge that the giriyama have done right they understand their spaces in a particular way they've named the seasons in a particular way they've named the wildlife the plant life in a particular way at the end of multiple generations of scientific observation right the colonial administrator does not see that doesn't appreciate that as scientific observation but Mm -hmm. it is scientific observation the idea of you know just the architecture that we had for our houses right there is a particular reason why this community would use grass to thatch their houses and these are the community would not right it's yeah. about what's available what's easily available what can we sustainably use so there is that right that lands and languages are intricately yeah. um, combined in the same way that I said earlier that lands and communities are intricately yeah. connected and so you know in in the 21st century if we are not actively propagating our own languages to the next generation there's a lot that we're losing right mm. we're, we're losing out as a community but we're also losing out on our previous ecological knowledge mm. which is bizarre because at this moment the other thing that we're talking about is climate change perhaps if we had a better understanding of Kikuyu and dulu and somalia and oromia there might be answers there to climate change
0: you know a very very interesting and powerful observation there so in other words um what you're saying is that literature especially african literature mm-hmm. thrives rather strongly on drawing mm-hmm. from the heritage where that heritage is linguistic heritage mm-hmm. aesthetic heritage mm-hmm. or even the physical heritage mm-hmm. and that what we require is really a deliberate nurturing of yes. that heritage yes. uh, not just for its own sake because it's actually also good mm-hmm. to be nurtured in its own right mm-hmm. but also because of its utility value yes in resolving some of the problems that um that that we have
1: yeah climate change absolutely industrialization going back to that earlier point absolutely yes Yes. political right how do we empower our democracy i believe there are answers to that from our own languages right the other question that you had was is the question whether we need to be able
0: to encourage people from other disciplines to draw on literature as they look for solutions to minimise the technical approach mm-hmm. that seems to dominate those other disciplines.
1: Yes, and the answer is you know it's absolutely yes. The reason being one, I don't know who, whom to attribute this to, but there's a saying that goes, "If you're not at the table, you're on the menu." Yeah. And so, if you're making policy decisions but living out local communities. Our solutions are handicapped from from the get-go, right? They're they're lacking from the get-go, as opposed to finding ways to welcome these people and having them explain to us exactly what it is that they find to be challenges, and more importantly, what they would envision to be sustainable, long-term solutions. So there's that. But also from just a basic educational perspective, from the psychology of education and the psychology of creativity creativity thrives from diversity which is why companies to to go off tangent just a little bit which is why companies that have a diverse board at the very top fortune 500 they perform over the long term they perform way better than companies that have similar looking similar minded people at the top so when technocrats have the opportunity to venture into the humanities that could be that could be literature for sure, it could be music, it could be poetry, it could be it could be drama. They gain, they, they gain from that. For a moment or two, they are able to approach the same challenge, the same engineering challenge, but from a different perspective, right? It's like when you're walking in a maze and you return to your starting point from a different direction, and you see the space in a different way. And I think in that, re-recognition, things, you know, ideas pop up. I find it
0: quite interesting that um, in medicine, Mm -hmm. for example, we know that music is critical Mm -hmm. for healing. Mm I mean, we know that. Mm -hmm. And yet, music is outside the classroom so that we teach um, other things, but do not bring in music into the classroom Mm -hmm. to even just build this consciousness Mm -hmm. that indeed this facility that we have is extremely valuable in terms of uh, healing. So I don't know what needs to be done to really bridge this gap between disciplines. Mm -hmm. Because even for us, I mean, to be a good novelist, you sometimes have to step out Mm -hmm. to other disciplines to be able to write. And I would assume that... To be a good doctor engineer, or engineer, yep. AI, you need to be able to step
1: out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, for me, this returns to this idea of a dichotomy. In the moment of conquest, in the moment in the imperial moment, the colonial moment, the need for discipline, the need for order necessitates, you know, divide and rule. It necessitates separation. So we say this space, we only do medicine. We don't do music. We don't do storytelling. We only do medicine in English. So if you as a patient cannot explain your conditions in English, you you are not going to get the best kind of health. So this need for discipline, this need for order that is a product of the colonial conquest, then kind of dissipates down into the kind of educational system that we've set up for ourselves whereby you know we separate things. Mm -hmm. As opposed to how the human mind actually works in a much more complex, much more dynamic way. Slightly off tangent, I was just reading an article, and this may be anecdotal, but Mm -hmm. they did quote one or two studies where the idea was that a sense of taste mm-hmm. is affected by ambient noise. So, you know, depending on the level of noise, wherever you are, the kinds of things that you can taste in your mouth are different. Wow. Right? Uh, the idea that taste and sound are connected is, is it's bizarre. But it, but it also makes sense, right? Yeah. The human mind works yeah. in complex, Absolutely. wonderful yeah. ways. And so, the learning, right, the feeding of the human mind should also happen in complex, wonderful ways. Absolutely. Yeah?
0: This concludes... Our first episode in our two-part series of the Africa Speaking Podcast in which I have been discussing with Professor Nanga Wahumoshiri. Thank you for listening to the Africa Speaking Podcast. Join us in our next episode brought to you by Trasa Communications. My name is Kimani Njogu. For any comments and views, you can reach us through our website www.africaspeaking.org. You can also reach us on Facebook, Tawesa Communications or on our Twitter handle at Towesa You can also write to us on email, info, at Africaspeaking.org.